Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, editor of the Lancet Psychiatry. Today we welcome Mina Fazel from the Department of Psychiatry at Oxford University. Mina is one of the authors of a pair of papers published in the Lancet Psychiatry on the subject of mental health services in schools. Welcome, Mina. Hello. So to begin with, Mina, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to be involved in this area of mental health care. All right. Well, I'm a child psychiatrist, mm -hmm. and I'm currently an NIHR postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Oxford. I have a real interest in vulnerable children, so children I see at high risk of developing mental illness, but are unable to access services. My real interest lies in how can we find a way to configure services to make them acceptable to um, young people and accessible. So I came into this area because I was working with refugee children and we set up a school-based mental health service for them over a decade ago. This came about because in the mental health service I was working, these young people weren't presenting at all. And yet we knew that they were likely to be suffering mental health problems. And when we went into the schools where they were, there were large numbers of young people who weren't able to access services for a variety of reasons. And working within the school context seemed to be particularly compelling because you could reach them. And then the, my interest has developed from there to all children with mental health problems. And really just the importance of schools and how we can think about schools an important way to access all children. Okay, so that's a, a broad scope. And uh, the, the first paper uh, in the issue is about services in high-income countries. And I wonder if you could give me an idea of what sorts of problems children and young people at school in these countries face and, and some, some idea of numbers as well. So the best estimates are that probably around 10% of young people, that's those under the age of 18, will benefit from some sort of access to specialist mental health care in their childhood. So that's quite a large number of young people. And the main message I think we need to think about is that these disorders are therefore very common, but not only that, they're also persistent, so they're likely to affect young people throughout the course of their life. That mental illness often starts in adolescence, but doesn't end in adolescence, it goes on. And so finding ways to approach treatment and access young people places in a way an important blueprint and framework for how we're going to approach them for the rest of their lives and how they'll approach services as well. So all children, irregardless of where they live, have the same requirements from school. They need it to be nurturing, safe. And children need to develop in a range of different areas during childhood. So there's obviously their academic development, but they also need to develop physically, emotionally, socially, morally. These are all tasks that young children need to learn about and develop during the course of their childhood. Okay. Now we know that the most common disorders in primary school children are really behavioral disorders, and in secondary school children, depression and anxiety in particular. So mental illness is a lifelong disorder. 75% of it is likely to start before the age of 18. And yet, from estimates in high-income countries, over 60% of those children are not accessing services. Okay. And clearly, the well-being of children as they are children, the well-being of uh, young people as they are young, is, is a worthwhile endeavour in itself. But, but as you were saying, 
there are consequences for the adults that these children, that these young people will become. What sorts of consequences are we talking about? Well, just thinking about the global burden of disease. So, you know, depression is predicted to be one of the leading causes of kind of global morbidity in the future. For a young person with depression, well, it's likely to affect potentially many different aspects of their development. So young people who are depressed might find it harder to achieve at school, to stay at school, so thinking about attainment and attendance. That's likely to impact on their long-term trajectory, not only academically, but that could affect their occupational um, choices. And it might also affect their relationships, their long-term social outcomes, and that's just one disorder. If you think about anxiety, if you think about psychotic illnesses, if you think about the whole range of neurodevelopmental disorders as well, these are likely to have long-standing implications if they're not addressed early. So it's clearly a problem, but the question is really what to do about about it and how feasible screening is, for example. Those who are for it would, would say early detection, early treatment's a good thing, but I know uh, others uh, would worry about medicalization of normal childhood, so-called labeling of school children. What, what would your view be on that? So it's an important question, and actually the screening raises many issues. I think what we need to think about is that the main issue, from my perspective, is that the majority of young people with mental health problems don't access services, and that is the the biggest problem for me. Now, the concerns we raise about you know how the labelling of school children also feeds into the whole argument and concern about the stigmatisation of mental illness. So. It, if there was greater understanding of mental illness, of what might cause it, of accessibility of treatment, we might not be so worried about labelling young people with mental illness. So I don't think we'd ever do this if we thought 10% of young people had diabetes. Mm -hmm. We wouldn't say that would be a bad thing to screen for. These are disorders that are lifelong, that affect young people. And so if we can first think about access to services and the whole issue of stigma, then actually I think screening is an essential part of it. Now, the ethical side is, should you screen if you've got no services that can then deal or help manage what you find as a result of the screening? But that's an important issue. But it, I think schools are a compelling place to think about this in particular because schools provide a platform to access large proportions of young people. It might not be that you need highly complex interventions for many of them. Actually, if you think about interventions in a multi-tiered way, it might be that a low-level intervention might address the vast majority of problems that are picked up in screening. So this really brings me on to my next point. We do, of course, already have schools uh, in high-income countries uh, and mental health systems in high-income <coughs> countries for children and adolescents. Do we just need more funds? Or is there some different way in which things can be done? Well, at, at present, when it comes to mental illness and mental health services, always more funds are needed. But that, yes. you know, that can't be the only thing that we think about in this regard. So, yes, there's a need to fund and resource this, but there are other important issues as well. So the first is that a large number of interventions have been trialled around high-income countries in particular. So we know a lot about specific interventions, ranges of interventions that have been done for whole schools, have been done for classrooms, have been done for selected individuals. But what we have fallen down on dramatically is the whole understanding of implementation. So the barriers from having a study that works to what is happening to then implement it on a larger scale. Now that 
probably has something to do with the manner in which we conduct research. So maybe the outcomes need to be thought about a little bit more clearly. So when we've got purely mental health outcomes, then, well, they're a compelling argument for mental health mm -hmm. professionals, but actually, if you don't ally this with educational outcomes, then why would schools think this would be a good idea to incorporate? Yet, we know the young people with mental health problems have poorer educational attainment, and also young people with poor educational attainment are likely to have higher proportions of mental illness. So we need to think about our outcomes, and we need to think really on a more national level about policies enabling education and health to work together more closely. Okay, so let's move away from high-income countries and to low- and middle-income countries, which are the subject of the second paper. Now, in the Lancet's Global Mental Health series, which were published in 2007 and 2011, one of the real standout messages was uh, an absolutely huge treatment gap for mental health problems. And I take it that the situation is, is the same for children in low- and middle-income countries as, as it is for adults. Yes, I agree. So the, the mental health treatment gap is substantial in low- and middle-income countries, and it affects adults, but I think it's actually far more pronounced for children and those under the age of 18. So every indicator we have of the lack of access to services for adults in, in these countries is even more pronounced for those under 18. If you step back and think globally about the number of children under the age of 18, then in low- and middle-income countries, 80% of the global population of children under 18 are in low- and middle-income countries. So the vast proportion of the populations we're talking about are in low and middle income countries and they are not having access to services they're very you know in countries where mental health services are poorly resourced they're even more poorly resourced for children but on the other hand we need to think that the schools in these environments or those schools are found far more um, readily in, in than mental health services there still are large proportions of children also not accessing school. So current estimates say that 9% of primary school children across the world are not accessing school and education. And I would be concerned that those with mental health problems are disproportionately represented in that group. So I think the mental health gap issues are far more extreme for children and something actually it's important to constantly be reminding mm -hmm. ourselves of. Okay. And uh, you discuss in the paper various ways in which this gap can be bridged. Um, you mentioned uh, the SHAPE program in India. I wonder if uh, you could tell me what that, what that was about, what it involved. Yeah, so the, the main challenge we've got is to find scalable examples mm -hmm. of how this can be addressed. Because we can't just say put more mental health professionals in these places because well, there's no training or resources available to get those mental health professionals into these areas. So SHAPE... Um, is quite an interesting example and that's the reason why we've highlighted it in the review because it doesn't use school professionals which is commonly utilized in many interventions it doesn't use mental health professionals it's trained lay health counselors mm -hmm. so that's the first thing that's very interesting about the intervention it takes lay people trains them for about 40 days and in the first year of their work they have quite a lot of ongoing supervision the other thing that's interesting is they don't just limit themselves to mental health. They limit themselves to health promotion, looking at physical and mental health needs. So these counsellors know how to screen for visual problems, 
to screen for weight problems, both undernourished and overweight children, but also to work with schools to develop kind of whole school changes to make the environment more psychologically minded for children and then also, when needed, to institute individual one-on-one counselling. So what SHAPE does is shows us that this can be done. It is acceptable, it's feasible, and it shows an impact. And I think it's compelling. We need to think about these different models of how to access so it's about integrating education, physical health, mental health care. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I know, as you mentioned early, earlier, that you have a particular interest in uh, children who have been affected by conflict. And uh, I wonder if school-based mental health programs could, could help with that particular issue. Well, that's how I came into this area. Right. And um, from the reviews, especially in the low-middle-income countries, the majority of studies, over half, have been conducted on this population. So schools, for some reason, seem to be a compelling um, place in which to access children from conflict-affected environments. Now, this could be because they're a natural first place for young people to go. So Mm -hmm. you can get whole populations moved, for example, to a refugee camp. Schools are often one of the first institutional structures that enter that environment. And kids go to school. And... Well, what we see in the UK is these kids then don't access education or they're there at school because there are so many broader issues that need addressing and mental health is one of those. So I think that schools are important places to access conflict-affected children, but I don't think we should think only of this group of children. Mm-hmm. There are large proportions of children who um, face various different types of deprivation, all of whom could potentially be accessed through schools from low resource settings, children who've come from contexts of violence, not only conflict that the refugees might have, but you know domestic violence, intracommunal violence. You know, there are lots of informal settlements developing across the world. It's likely that schools are going to be an important place to access these young people as well. Okay, so I have one last question, and this is one I imagine is probably common to countries at, at all levels of income, and that is to, to sound a little bit like, like grad grind in Charles Dickens. Isn't the primary purpose of education to educate? Isn't mental health beyond the remit of schools? Don't schools and teachers already have enough on their plates? Well, there's no doubt that health and education are very different systems right now. So what we learn when we become doctors in medical school is completely different from what a teacher mm-hmm. will learn to become a teacher. But The reality is that I think we need to have an orientation that is child-focused. So thinking from the perspective of a child, what is the best way to provide what a child needs? Now, if schools said we're only academically teaching children, that would be one thing. But no school ignores the emotional context, the behavioral context, the moral context, the physical and educational context of a child. And so in line with that, it seems that we're not maximizing on the opportunities to work in these environments if health and education doesn't become more closely aligned. So I would say that in health, our training around education and how to potentially work in education is lacking. And I think in education, teachers have so many things they need to learn Mm -hmm. and do that to expect them to have an understanding of mental health illness might seem difficult, but actually what I'm saying is there's a basic understanding of mental illness, which I think 
is important for teachers to understand because many teachers report that the disruptive behaviours in the classroom, which are often from children who are suffering from emotional and behavioural disorders, are the things that impact on their capacity to teach the rest of the classrooms. So the consequences of untreated mental illness can impact on classrooms. And so I think that if we can work where the children are, the evidence shows that children prefer to be accessed in school than outside school. So I think we need to throw away the kind of framework that we come in with and think, let's have an orientation that's child-orientated. Children are at school, their families more naturally access schools. Let's not forget there will always be a group of kids that don't like school and probably won't want to be seen or accessed through school. But I would imagine that's a minority. And the majority are there. We need to work more closely in okay. that environment. So healthcare workers can learn from teachers and teachers can learn from healthcare workers. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, those papers are free online uh, at our website, of course. They're very uh, interesting, very accessible pieces of work, and I hope that they will be read and discussed widely. So thanks again, Mina, for joining us. Uh, thanks to you, the listener, for downloading this podcast, and I hope that you will join us again next time.